German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, quote, Christian morality is the most malignant form of falsehood. Nietzsche said we need to indulge our desires. We don't need to fight them. We certainly don't need to pretend that we can conquer them. And so Nietzsche found the Sermon on the Mount to be repulsive because in it Jesus tells us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Gandhi said, Christ's Sermon on the Mount fills me with bliss even today. Its sweet verses have the power to quench my agony of soul. And yet Gandhi denied the deity and resurrection of Jesus. So why did he like the Sermon on the Mount? Because he read it through the lens of Eastern mysticism. He saw it as the sort of thing that he would find in Buddhism or in Hinduism, insisting that we deny the reality of ourselves and our own desires. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy read the Sermon on the Mount, and he concluded that this was the true Christianity. The rest of it could be jettisoned. And to try to live that out, he renounced his titles of nobility. He renounced all his property. He went out one night into the cold night, and he froze to death. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is indeed a passage that captivates the imagination and evokes strong responses. And we started looking at Jesus' Sermon last week, which is undoubtedly the most famous sermon ever preached. And we pointed out that while the Sermon on the Mount is famous and while it's well-loved, except by Nietzsche, it's highly controversial. Many people read it and they reach very different conclusions about what Jesus means in this sermon and how we should live by it. So last week I gave an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were, 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 if you were with us and forgot, or if you weren't with us, uh, I'll give you a brief recap of that now. I defended the position that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to Jesus' disciples, that apart from Jesus, man cannot live up to the Sermon on the Mount, either by renouncing our possessions like Tolstoy thought, or by living as a nonviolent mystic like Gandhi thought, or just by trying really hard, which is what Nietzsche thought. No, the Sermon on the Mount speaks to the saved, and it teaches believers about who we are and how we ought to live in light of the truth that the kingdom of God has drawn near. In other words, this sermon teaches us how it is that Jesus coming to the earth should impact our walk with God and our inner life and how we interact with other people. Now, after I gave that introduction last week, we got into the text of Jesus' sermon, and we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Today is the second part of our study on the Beatitudes, which are nine blessings pronounced by Jesus. We saw last time the Beatitudes are really in two parts. There is an initial list of eight blessings, which are presented in a highly structured way with the repeating formula, in which a group of people are described as being blessed, and then a promise is attached to them. We've got that list of eight blessings. And then there is a ninth blessing, which is different in structure and form. Really, it has a lot more in common with the passage we're going to look at the next time we're in Matthew together. Now, last time we started looking at the initial list of eight blessings, and we spent some time talking about the structure, and we saw that in the eight blessings up front, the first blessing and the last blessing contain an identical promise. And we said that this is a structure which is a, a rhetorical structure often used in ancient rhetoric and literature called an inclusion, which is a list that begins and ends in the same way. And what an inclusion signifies is that everything in this list between the repeated phrase should be read in light of the repeated idea. And in the Beatitudes, the idea which is repeated at the beginning and the end of this list is this. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now that tells us everything else on this list is speaking about those who possess the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this list of blessings describes believers. Those who have responded to Jesus' call to repent and believe the gospel. We also saw last time that the first and last item on this list of eight blessings speak of the kingdom of heaven as something which people presently possess. But the second through the seventh blessings speak about the kingdom of heaven using future tense verbs. And this combination of present and future tense verbs tell us the kingdom is something which has begun to appear in the first coming of Christ, but it awaits its fulfillment its consummation at His second coming when believers will receive the full measure of the blessing of God. We then looked at the first four blessings, which we said could be grouped based on the fact that they start with the same letter in Greek and that they're conceptually related. We talked about the poor in spirit, those who mourn, which we interpreted as mourning sin, on the meek and the humble, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we looked at how Jesus blessed them, and we said that basically the first four ideas all point to one truth which is that God's blessing of salvation comes only to those who cast themselves upon Him, who recognize our total inability uh, to save ourselves and our total dependence on Him to help us. Now today I intend to finish looking at the Beatitudes, both those in the initial list of eight blessings and to start talking about the ninth blessing, which, like I've said, is a little bit different. And in our study today, we're going to add to our understanding of how Jesus describes those who presently have a participation in the kingdom of heaven. Today we're going to see that believers are characterized by showing mercy, by having a transformed heart, by being peacemakers, and then finally in a double blessing Jesus tells us that believers are those who suffer for righteousness sake. We suffer persecution. So that's where we're going to go today. Let's jump right into our first point which is the fifth beatitude. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What's it mean to be merciful? Well, this is a characteristic that talks about how we deal with others. And I think Matthew's going to show us over the coming chapters that there are really two big ideas within this characteristic of mercy. First is the idea of mercy in relation to sin. We've said that the Beatitudes describe believers and that the six middle Beatitudes end by talking about blessings that will come in the future when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. And here in verse 7, we find part of that description of future blessing as we see the promise of mercy. They shall receive mercy. This is talking about the merciful response God will give His people from His final judgment of humanity, His judgment of sin. You've probably heard this definition of mercy before. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And what our sin deserves, according to Jesus later in this chapter, is the hell of fire. What he calls in Matthew 25, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus has a lot to say about the terrible punishment of hell in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout this whole book. But the mercy of God through the gospel liberates sinners from this terrible sentence. The mercy of God allows us to no longer stand under God's condemnation. Instead, we stand in Christ's perfect righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5 says. We stand as God's adopted children, Ephesians 1 says. We stand as the heirs of the kingdom, Romans 8 says. Listen to what 1 Peter 1 says, right at the beginning of the book. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. By the gracious mercy of God, we who should be damned because of our wretched sins receive a glorious pardon, a glorious standing, and a glorious hope from the Father. That is the promise of the second half of verse 7. Abundant mercy will be ours in its fullness. But let's look now at the first half of the verse. And here we see that Jesus describes those who receive this mercy as themselves being merciful. Now, since the mercy in the second half of this verse is mercy from the consequences of sin, we should understand this is the same kind of mercy Jesus is talking about in the first half of the verse also. In other words, the people of God are to be a people who not only receive God's forgiveness, but who practice forgiving others. Now, if we're not careful when we hear this, we can fall into a trap, which many people have fallen into when we read the Beatitudes. I warned you against this last week. This is a reading of the Beatitudes which takes them not as descriptions of the saved, but as preconditions for salvation. If we read this beatitude wrongly, we might think that Jesus is saying, forgiving others is the basis for your forgiveness from God, that we can save ourselves by simply being forgiving. But that's not what Jesus is saying or what the beatitudes are doing. The beatitudes, again, describe those who presently belong to the kingdom of heaven. They are describing those who are saved, not how someone becomes saved. So Jesus is not saying that you are saved by forgiving. What he is saying is that those who are truly the people of God are characterized by showing mercy to others for their sins. We'll find the same idea in chapter 6. Listen to this. Jesus says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You could say, well, wow, if I took that verse by itself apart from the rest of the New Testament, it would sound like Jesus is teaching salvation by forgiveness. But in the context of this book, in the context of the whole New Testament, we know that's not the case. The issue is not if I forgive someone, I'm guaranteed salvation. Rather, the issue is if I refuse to forgive someone, then I show that I don't really belong to God. And why is that? Because the refusal to forgive someone shows that we have no understanding of the nature or the depth of our own sin. Jesus makes the same point later in this book in chapter 18 when he tells a parable that I'm sure you've heard about a servant who owed a king an extravagant debt. And the king mercifully forgave this debt. But the forgiven servant immediately went out and he found someone who owed him a tiny amount of money. And it says he choked him and said, give me what I'm owed. And the debtor said, please give me a little more time to pay you back. And the servant said, no, and had him hold off to prison. And Jesus said, when the king heard about this, he had the servant brought before him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then to be really clear, Jesus says this, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's pretty serious. 
Those who don't forgive show themselves to not be forgiven. Why? To be forgiven, to truly exercise repentant faith, means we've got to have some conception of the enormity of our debt to God. And if we really understand the enormity of our offense to God, it relativizes every other offense that people commit against us. If we really consider how great our sin debt is to God, and how much and how liberally He has forgiven us in Christ, it becomes a lot harder for us to enumerate fully every wrong someone has done to us, and to demand an exact accounting down to the last scintilla from those who have grieved us. On the other hand, when we are prone to unforgiveness, we justify our unforgiveness by seeing the sins of others as massively evil, as unforgivable. And you know what? I find that when I'm prone to do this and see the sins of others as totally incomprehensibly evil, I always realize that I'm minimizing my own sin. I can see other people's sin in great detail. Wow, it's so massive when I look at my own sin. Oh, of course God's going to forgive that. And if that's our consistent life pattern, if we see our sin always as trivial and the sins of others who have wronged us as always enormous and unforgivable, friends, we, we have not come to, to grips with the debt that we owe God. The gospel's declaration of our sinfulness and the truth of the magnitude of our offense against God and the extent of forgiveness that is in the gospel is entirely inconsistent with the attitude of unforgiveness. It is the merciful who receive mercy. The people of God are to be forgiving. And not just forgiving in a minimalistic sort of way. Famous verses again from Matthew 18. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? He thought that was pretty generous. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Jesus said, counting up to seven, does not even begin to scratch the surface of the degree of forgiveness that we should show others. Colossians 3 tells us, forgive even as the Lord has forgiven you. And friends, would we not be in terrible trouble if the Lord only forgave us seven times? God is willing to release us from His righteous wrath for our countless sins, and so likewise we must be willing to release our demand from a full accounting of others for their sins against us. Now, I need to put a few caveats on this. Number one, when I say that the debt we owe God is massive and relativizes whatever offenses we suffer from others, I am not saying that all sin is the same or that whatever wrongs you have suffered are somehow trivial in God's sight. That's not true at all. We're going to see in chapter 11 of this book, Jesus teaches that not all sin is equal. Some sin is worse than other sin. And we will see that some people are in line for a worse eternal punishment than others. But while we may have suffered terrible evils, and while certainly some people are indeed more evil than others, at the end of the day, we have all done evil. We have all sinned. We all do deserve God's wrath in different measures. But God's wrath is still hell, and that's what each of us deserves. And so no matter what has been done to us, we need to understand that our debt to God for our sin is infinitely greater than whatever we have suffered at the hands of someone else. And so it is still true that our forgiveness should lead us to forgive others who have wronged us. Now second, when the Bible talks about forgiving someone, it's ordinarily talking about forgiving someone who repents. After all, we are to forgive as Christ forgives. And who does Christ forgive but the repentant? 
In the same way, in Luke 17, we read Jesus saying these words. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The warnings against unforgiveness in the Bible usually speak about our refusal to forgive someone who is seeking to repent of their wrongs against us. Say, so well, what about a situation where I've been wronged by somebody and they don't repent? That's a pretty complicated question, and we're going to take that on in a few weeks. But for the moment, let me just say this. The believer should always go as far as we can without compromising the truth, in letting go of our own personal bitterness, in no longer nursing past wounds, and in being ready to quickly reconcile and forego vengeance with anybody that wants to have peace with us. We need to have an attitude of peace with them. And that's the attitude we need to adopt whether others have, wrong, that have wronged us repent or not. Okay? We need to go as far as we can by ourselves, and, and hopefully that someday we can be reconciled with them, but that, that may not be possible. Sometimes the people that have wronged us have died. Right? We've got to go as far as we can by ourselves, and hopefully someday God will give us a chance at reconciliation. But there's another aspect of this idea that the merciful receive mercy. Chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, verse 2, he's going to talk about giving to the needy. Giving to the needy is the translation of a Greek word, which means to perform deeds of mercy. And so the merciful here are not just those who adopt a forgiving disposition towards those who wrong them. The merciful are also those who are willing to share what they have with those who are in need. This, too, is something that ought to characterize believers. 1 John 3 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And the implication is it doesn't. The true Christian who has experienced the kindness of God will be a conduit of kindness to others, especially to those in need and especially to believers who are in need. And thankfully, I think we've seen a very good practical ex example of this recently with that terrible snowstorm and, and in our church, how people took care of one another as there were great needs. So to wrap this beatitude up then, we might think of the merciful as those who are generous, who are quick to charitably help those in need, who are quick to forgive those who wrong them, those characteristics are defining characteristics in the life of the true believer. And God will reward them, promising to bless us with His mercy, His bounteous forgiveness and kindness in the kingdom to come. Come now to our second point today, which is the sixth beatitude. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now let's start with this question. What's it mean to be pure in heart? Well, the background here probably comes from Psalm 24, which says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. The psalmist defines purity of heart as one who doesn't lift up his soul towards what is false, which is a roundabout way of saying he doesn't worship idols, and he doesn't swear deceitfully, he's honest. In other words, this is a person with inner moral integrity whom the psalmist says will be blessed by God. So who is pure in heart? Well, when you read the Old Testament, you find the answer pretty quickly. Genesis 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. And clearly the answer is no one. Now this is a point that modern evangelical Christianity has done a terrible job of teaching. The major ligonier and Lifeway study, the State of Theology, which is done every two years, was conducted last year. And it showed that 65% of Americans and 46% of evangelicals agreed with the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Friends, that is emphatically false according to the Bible. We are born sinful, depraved, corrupt, and fallen. Romans 3 says none is righteous. How many? None. Not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That's the natural condition of humanity. The heart is desperately sick indeed. Jesus will say later in this book, in chapter 15, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Ordinarily in our lives, yes, sometimes temptations come to us from the outside, but they often come from the mire of our heart, throwing up filthy things which we mix our will with. Yes, the heart is despicably wicked. Disney movies tell us, follow your heart. Jesus says that will lead us straight into hell. And so God commands that we purify our hearts. Deuteronomy 10, he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's a metaphor. God says to Israel, clean your heart, get rid of the filth. But how? How can what is unclean produce what is clean? How can what is impure produce what is pure? It can't. We cannot purify our own hearts. That's why God said to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Friends, the purification of our heart is not something we accomplish on our own. It is a work that God has to do in us. It is a work to transform what was dead, corrupt, and vile into what is alive and pure and loves God. It is an act of creation, of new creation, we might say. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And there he uses the verb that we find in Genesis 1, where God created everything. We need to be made new. We need to be transformed. And friends, this is a prayer that God still answers today. You know, God promised Israel in Ezekiel twice, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that you may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And now, after the cross of Christ, this new covenant has come into effect, instituted by the blood of Jesus, a promise that runs not only to Israel, but to all who believe. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul can say, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We see the effects of this transformation in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to this. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, 
You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, the gospel transforms our lives. Now when I say that, am I saying we're going to attain sinless perfection? Of course not. I remember a story about Spurgeon ran into some guy who was teaching sinless perfection. And he said, you think you're sinlessly perfect? The guy said, yeah. Spurgeon threw hot coffee on him. The guy got up and started screaming and Spurgeon walked off laughing. Okay, like we are not going to attain sinless perfection. But believing, friends, we have a new heart. And yet, are we not still tempted inwardly with the things that Jesus has characterized the fallen heart? Are we not still tempted by hateful anger and lust and lying and vindictiveness? Friends, if we know Christ, I think we all will see there is a clash in our lives. The clash between the flesh and the spirit. But those who come to Christ do experience transformation. Transformation that increases as time goes by, or it should. Holiness which grows. The author of Hebrews says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's an important verse. We live in a day of, in which the church often basically denies the truth of this verse, that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, believers are to produce holiness. But it produces, we produce holiness within the context of a lifelong of striving. And that struggle attests the reality of our new nature. It's when we have no struggle and we resign ourselves to our sin, that's when we should be most worried. If we have a struggle, that points to the eventual victory which will be ours in Christ. And so the person who comes to Christ has a purified heart. They have been made new. And those who have come to Christ through faith in the gospel and are made new are now given a blessing. In Exodus 33, God told Moses, You cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. And we hear that throughout the Old Testament. See it in the New Testament too. 1 Timothy 6 says that God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one ever has seen or can see. But in the end, things are going to be different. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 11. And Psalm 11 ends like this. The upright shall behold his face. That promise wouldn't have made any sense to the Israelites when they first heard it. They said, we can't look on God and live. A time is coming when that will change. Think of 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. One of the last things we're told in the Bible about the new creation is this, in Revelation 22, 4. It says, they, believers, shall see His face. And that's the promise here. Those who come to Christ, believers, we are made new creations, and one day we will behold the very face of God. We will have that kind of direct interaction and relationship with God. All right, well, let's come now to our third point, which is the seventh beatitude. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. It's time the blessings on the peacemakers. What's Jesus talking about? Well, believers are to be marked by love for everybody generally and especially for fellow believers. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I know those are familiar words. But they're weighty words too, friends. Our calling card in society is to be love. And that's true because God is the source of love. And through the gospel, God has given us His love. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God has also given believers His Spirit, which leads us in unity. Ephesians 4 says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It speaks of the unity of the local church that happens when the church is submitted to the Spirit. But frankly, I found these words are also applicable even among individuals who are not members of the same church. Where the Spirit has reign in the church or in the lives of believers, there will be a unity and a fellowship. That's what the book of James says. James 3.17, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. But unfortunately, there is another wisdom. There is a wisdom from below. James 3 says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And tragically, sometimes believers live by the wisdom from below instead of the wisdom from above. You might not remember this. This was a major theme in our study last year in 1 Corinthians. Where the Spirit reigns, where the Word of God is obeyed, there is a delightful unity and fellowship of believers. But where there is compromise with the world and its false wisdom, chaos and ruin and fragmentation follow. The interpersonal peace of believers is ruptured. But what happens when peace is ruptured? Well, here Jesus speaks of believers as peacemakers. We are to try and restore peace and reconcile with one another. Now, the Bible tells us believers are to be peacemakers in a few different ways. First, we find this general principle in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that's a command, friends. Believers are to pursue peace with everyone. We are not to be factious. We are not to be bitter, sowing discord and perpetuating conflict. For Galatians 5 tells us that enmity and strife and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy, these are the works of the flesh. Instead, we're to let the Spirit cultivate His fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says in Romans 14, 19, Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And yet, believing friends, sometimes despite our best efforts, we cannot perpetuate peace. Sometimes hostility ensues. And if hostility is to continue, make that be because the other party won't reconcile with you and not because you have withheld reconciliation from them. Friends, we cannot control how other people behave or respond to us. The command is that insofar as it's on us, we pursue peace. That's no guarantee that we will succeed, but we're to try. And where peace is ruptured, it is for the people of God to address it. The people of God are to be peacemakers. Let me give five quick points now about making peace. First, if you have something against a brother or sister in Christ, go to them. That's what Jesus says in chapter 18 of this book. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, if he doesn't agree with you, there's an extensive process described there to resolve it. But when someone ruptures peace with you, you are to go to them. You're to address it. Second, 
If you know a brother or sister has something against you, you're still to go to them. Jesus will say in a few weeks in, here in chapter 5, if you're offering your, guilt, your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, don't make a brother or sister who has a problem with you seek you out. If you know there's an issue in either direction, you have an issue with them or they have an issue with you, you are to go and resolve it. Third, if you know there are issues between other brothers or sisters, it is worthwhile to try and bring them together. Now again, you're never going to be able to control what other people want to do. And you can't make other people do what they don't want to do. I can't make my two warring friends who have unconfessed sin towards each other work it out, no matter how much I may urge them to do so. But if you, if you find that you can try to facilitate bridging the gap, try and leave it in the Lord's hands. See what happens. Fourth, if you find yourself either confronting or being confronted, be honest and be humble. If you're... Addressing sin in someone else, yes, at some point you're going to have to say to them, I see this in your life, and that's not easy to do. But first, make sure you're not walking in hypocrisy. First, take the log out of your own eye, as Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount. And one way to do that is to start hard conversations by confessing whatever sins you have against the person you're talking to. That will put you in the right and humble mindset. And it will give them space to see if they're willing to meet you and likewise walk in humility and confession. And fifth, and I think this is very important, while peace is important, we do not sacrifice the truth to buy a false peace. Remember, true unity only comes from the Spirit of God. And the Spirit is not glorified through lies. Well, let's just agree that it didn't happen. That's not honoring to God because it did. Well, we can maintain peace by, let's pretend like, you know, we don't know about any of this. That's not honoring to God either. Whatever peace you think you're buying when you try those sorts of worldly approaches is a false peace. Because it doesn't reflect the wisdom from above. It reflects the wisdom from below. And the selfishness of not wanting to deal with difficult things and the hardship that comes from them, that is not from the spirit. That is from the world. So yes, friends, we should pursue peace. And yes, we must try to make peace. But make a godly peace that is predicated upon truth and the love for the truth. Friends, believers by their nature should be peacemakers. You know, this world is characterized by division and playing politics and warring to acquire stuff and power. But it is believers who are called to lay down their lives for the brethren. It is believers who gladly suffer inconvenience to help one another. I'm not saying that everybody who lays down their life for someone else or who suffers inconvenience is necessarily a believer. But believers are certainly to do these things. And these things ought to describe believers. And so Jesus pronounces this blessing upon peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Now there's two ways to take this. The first is sometimes in the Bible we'll see people called sons of something. So there's some, some guys in the Old Testament who are called the sons of worthlessness. Okay? That's not a good title. That means they're worthless, right? Think of Barnabas. He's called the son of encouragement. That's a, that's a much better title. Okay, sometimes you find this construction, son of, and it's talking about somebody's characteristics. And here, Jesus says peacemakers are called the sons of God. That means peacemakers reflect an attribute of God. God is a peacemaker. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Colossians 1 says, In Him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ has achieved peace between God and sinful humanity. Ephesians 2 tells us Christ has achieved peace between Jew and Gentile. God, through Christ, makes peace. And so the peacemaking Christian reflects this attribute of God. But a second way we could talk about somebody being called a son of God here, I think comes from an idea we saw a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 2, where we saw this statement made, Out of Egypt I called my son. In the context of this book, Matthew's talking about Jesus. But we said in the original context, the prophet Hosea was talking about Israel. Israel, the people of God, were originally, they could be called God's sons. But now God is amassing a new people from every nation. People whom Ephesians 1 tells us have been predestined to adoption as God's sons. Galatians 4 says, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. As God's children, we have God's Spirit, which brings us into a personal relationship with the Father, which qualifies us for the inheritance of the new creation. And so Jesus indeed says, Peacemakers are blessed because they will be called the sons of God. For when the kingdom comes, they will inherit it. And they will enjoy unending peace with fellow believers and their heavenly Father. Now before I go on, I want to just say one more word about these three Beatitudes we've seen so far, about being merciful and pure in heart and the peacemaker. We've said that these are descriptions of believers, just as the first four Beatitudes described believers. And in one sense, these things are all profoundly true of believers because of the grace of God through the gospel, which transforms our lives when we come to faith. But, as James says, we all stumble in many ways, don't we? The Beatitudes not only describe what the believer is by the grace of God through the gospel, they also describe the high standard that God calls us to live by and how far we fall short. And I don't know about you, but when I read this list, I become profoundly aware of my own faults. And in case you don't feel like you have any faults in the sight of this text, let me ask you a few questions. Are there areas of bitterness and unforgiveness in our lives? Are there ways in which we have the means to help hurting people, especially needy believers, and we have failed to do so? If so, we've got to practice mercy. We need to repent of our failures. We need to have a change of mind. We need to see the way we've been doing things is wrong, and we need to see it in such a way that leads us to a change of life. In the same way, what is our inner life like? When no one else is around, when no one else seems to be watching, what do we enjoy thinking about? Would we feel comfortable with the mental picture in our minds being played to the person who's sitting next to us in the church? If not, we have a problem with the purity of our hearts, and we need to confess our sin to the Lord, and we need to forsake it. Do we have unresolved interpersonal conflicts that we have failed to address? Not where we have made a good faith effort, and the other person doesn't want to have anything to do with us, but where the ball is clearly in our court, and we just decide it's inconvenient for me to deal with that. Do we have friends or family members who should be at peace and we could try to help bring them together but we don't want the headache or the unpleasantness of trying? If so, friends, remember 
believers are to be peacemakers, and we are to fulfill this sacred duty. I'm going to tell you, this text has caused me to do a lot of reflecting, especially on anger and bitterness and forgiveness, and I've got to address some of these issues in my life. And friends, I would say, if you want to know God's will for your life, I hope you will reflect on these same words of Jesus and pray that the Spirit would examine you by them and show you how to bring your life into conformity with what Jesus says we are and should be as believers. All right, this brings me to my last point today in which we see the eighth beatitude. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And with this, Jesus ends his initial declaration of blessings. We know that because this is the same blessing that, uh, that was repeated at the beginning of this list of blessings. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has now described believers, and he has told us they have a present share in the kingdom, and he has told us in the future they will enjoy the bounty of the kingdom when it comes in its fullness. But what I want to draw your attention to here is the fact that this last description of believers might seem surprising, that believers are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Based on what we've read over the previous verses, we might have a hard time understanding why anybody would want to persecute a believer. Because believers are humble, not arrogant. Believers forgive others, and they help the needy, and they have their hearts purified from evil, and they want to make peace. Why in the world would somebody want to persecute somebody like that? Well, the Bible tells us Satan wants to persecute people like that. Satan's rebellious world system, the cultures of this world and their institutions want to persecute people like that. Unbelievers trapped under Satan's influence and decision and direction want to persecute people like that. Why? The book of 1 Peter gives us a keen insight. 1 Peter 4.3 says this, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Unbelievers want to revel in sin. And the presence and testimony of believers shames them. It exposes their wickedness. And they don't want to be exposed. Remember John's Gospel? Jesus says they prefer the darkness to the light. They want to turn off our light and go back to doing evil. The first thing they'll try to do is rope us into participating with them. But if that doesn't work, they will persecute believers. They did it in ancient times, and they do it today. One study says 75 million Christians over the history of the church have died for their faith, and 40 million of them died in the 20th century. Friends, persecution exists, and it is getting worse. The world wants believers to shut up and conform. And so Peter tells us, if only we'd cave, if only we'd participate with them, then they'd be fine with us. But if we don't, they will silence us, they will malign us, and they will try to kill us. And so believers are and will be persecuted. Jesus now gives another longer and more complex blessing related to this same idea. Listen to verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus blesses the persecuted, except this time he doesn't talk about the persecuted as some hypothetical group that he uses third-person pronouns to talk about. No, he says this time, when they revile you. Jesus says to his audience, it's going to happen to you. And Matthew 
quotes this because he wants his audience to hear it's going to happen to you. And the Holy Spirit has preserved this down through the ages to say to every Christian and every church, it's going to happen to you. It's not an if, it's a when. We will suffer persecution. And why shouldn't we suffer it? Jesus says the Old Testament prophets were persecuted when they obeyed God. In Amos chapter 7, the prophet was falsely accused of treason. In Micah 2, they tried to shut him up. Read Jeremiah, how many times did they try to arrest and kill him? Jewish tradition, which the New Testament seems to back up, says the prophet Zechariah was murdered. Isaiah was sawn in half. There's a reason in chapter 23, Jesus says Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets. Those who stand for God's truth have always been subject to intense opposition and persecution. And we shouldn't expect that to be any different for us today. Believers who have any testimony at all, who don't just go along with the world, who generally live in line with the Christian life and who proclaim the gospel, will at some point face opposition. We will be reviled, Jesus says. People will treat us as shameful. Even though they're the group reveling in wickedness, they'll say, oh, we're normal, and you're the bad ones. They will mock us and scorn us and hate us. False, evil things will be said about us. Early Christians were slandered in many ways. People called them atheists because they wouldn't worship visible idols. They called them cannibals because they took communion. They said they practiced incest because they married people they called their brothers and sisters. These things were all lies. It was thrown at them to undermine the gospel and to hurt their reputation. Friends, we too will be slander in our day as wicked, hateful bigots. More than that, we'll be persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. John 15, he says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And how far did they persecute Jesus? To the cross. Why should we expect that it would be different for us? We are called to persecution, believing friends. It's part of our birthright. Now I want to finish this up by saying a few things about persecution. First, persecution is suffering for righteousness' sake, according to verse 10, or suffering on behalf of Jesus, according to verse 11. This is gospel-related suffering. It is suffering which targets the people of God. Unfortunately, these days I think Christians are quick to call things persecutory, which really aren't. For instance, I've heard a lot of talk alleging public health restrictions are persecutory. Now, in some jurisdictions, it's pretty clear there were targeted ordinances that tried to crack down on churches. But here in Texas, churches weren't treated any different than grocery stores or restaurants. By definition, that's not persecutory. Persecution is targeting Christians because of the gospel, treating us worse than others. Additionally, suffering is only persecutory if it's related to our testimony about the gospel or our obedience to the Bible. 1 Peter 4 says, if you suffer for doing criminal things, don't pretend it's righteous. In the same way, I'd say if we experience personal blowback for our politics or things we've done that really have nothing to do with the Lord, don't pretend that's persecutory. Persecution is suffering which is directly related to our relationship with Jesus and His gospel and His word. And to speak of persecution in other contexts trivializes real persecution, and I would say it fails to prepare us for the persecution which is coming. And that's the second thing I would say to you today. If you think the last year is bad, friend, you ain't seen nothing yet, because persecution is coming. Now, in one sense, persecution is always here. That's Jesus' point. They persecuted the prophets, they persecuted the apostles, they persecuted people across history. Of course, unbelievers will oppose and slander and try to destroy us too. 
Have you ever faced blowback because of your faith? 1 Peter 4 says, if you're around unbelievers and you have a testimony for Jesus, you will. If you haven't, what does that say about your testimony? Opposition is part and parcel of being a Christian. But frankly, I think it's apparent that in this country, a more systemic and institutional form of opposition to the gospel is at hand. And in many ways, it's already begun. Believers are being squeezed to conform to the world's definition of what is acceptable. I've said for years that the spearhead that will lead to the persecution of the church in this country is the homosexual and transgender agenda, which apparently is dissatisfied with its newfound power and influence until it curbs all dissent and demands the unconditional adherence of every American. And friends, make no mistake, this power and influence is still in the ascendancy. And as this idea continues to dominate the culture, the pressure to conform will be immense. Large Christian organizations are already feeling it because they have to meet a bottom line. And they know taking unpopular stands for God's truth about sexuality and marriage will cost them financially. That's why this week, Bethany Christian Services, which is one of the largest Christian adoption agencies in the country, decided to, quote, offer services with the love and compassion of Jesus to the many types of families who exist in our world today. All are welcome. They'll now place parentless kids with homosexual couples. They explain, quote, We recognize there are people who will not be happy, but serving children should not be controversial. The fact a Christian organization thinks that introducing needy kids to homosexuality and normalizing sexual deviance is serving them shows they basically lost the thread. But what's happening here is they have interpreted the times. And they see that they cannot maintain their 1,500-person staff if they don't compromise in this area. And so they capitulated. They're not alone. Lots of big parachurch ministries are capitulating. Lots of churches are capitulating. More will follow. Lots of individual Christians are capitulating. Did you know last month the top-selling Christian artist was Semler, who is a lesbian? And her new album is all about how the church has been very mean to her. And Christians are buying this to listen to the queer experience in the church. Friends, this is a desire to be conformed to the world instead of the word. And frankly, with the impending passage of the Equality Act, and who knows what litigation and legislation will follow that, who knows where it will lead. But let me tell you this. Don't trust in the First Amendment to protect you from persecution, because it won't. Don't trust in judges to protect you from persecution, because they won't. The things of this world won't protect you from the dangers of this world, because persecution and opposition are unavoidable. And friend, make no mistake, every one of us in the end will have to be countered, and the costs will be high. But when the persecution comes for you, Jesus says, don't despair, don't grumble, Rejoice, because your suffering is proof positive that you belong to Him. It shows, like the prophets of old, you're the people of God, and your reward in heaven is great. So stand firm. Jesus told the persecuted church in Smyrna this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So be faithful, friends. Christ will help us endure, and He will glorify us in the end. And that's what the Beatitudes tell us. Hold firm because Jesus loves us, he has blessed us, he has given us a share of his kingdom, and the day is coming when our reward will be full, when we will be comforted from the ruin of this world, 
when we will inherit the earth, when we will be free from the presence of sin, when we will obtain the fullness of God's mercy, when we will be called the sons of God, and when we will see God himself. Friends, times are tough. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But persevere to the end, because great is your reward in the new creation.